Good morning. It's good to uh, get together again here this Sunday morning uh, via our Facebook live stream. Uh, we are in our fifth week of doing this. It seems uh, crazy. It feels like a short time, but also feels like a really long time. And uh, I know you're probably similar to me, feeling just the the longing of wanting to be together, of of actually getting to resume fellowship, in person fellowship, and and I am looking forward to that Sunday and that potluck. We gotta have that potluck afterwards. Getting together, it's just gonna be such such sweet fellowship. I mean, that's one thing that I am really learning during this time is just the uh, man what a gift it is to be able to get with people to be around each other especially others other Christians uh, who have covenanted together as members of a church to to love and serve the Lord Christ together um, I just I'm ready for interactions to not be weird when we see people out and about and you don't know can I shake their hand should I not when is it okay and you know can I even hug my own family members when they come or this we're all just dying for that and I think it just is a testimony to um, I know for me just the complacency in my mind of taking a lot of things for granted and being very um, selfish and greedy and wanting more and more and more instead of being so thankful for what the Lord has given us uh, in just the normal everyday workings of life. So anyways, um, got a few announcements kicking us off this morning. Um, if you haven't seen the emails, Andrew's been leading a prayer group on Tuesday nights via Zoom. I know maybe everybody's just totally Zoomed out and tired of doing Zoom. It's the best we got. It's it's what we got to be able to interact with each other in groups. Um, so be checking that out if you if you want to get involved. Uh, just be just praying for the needs of our church and our community, uh, and and the the globe because this is a truly global situation that we're in, and we can't say that about everything. So uh, be be aware of that. Um, also, Nathan's been sending out emails that have uh, songs for worship. Uh, that's a great gift for us. I mean, if we if we tried to play the songs here live, uh, it just wouldn't be the same. And and we're we don't have the budget for some crazy kind of live streaming capabilities with music. Um, but what you can do is listen to a curated list of songs and sing together as a family. Nathan's put some time and thought into that, so we're thankful. Um, be sure to check those things out. And if you're not getting those uh, reach out to to him via email or call him if you have his number. I'm sure he'd be willing to easily get those things to you. Uh, our trek lessons. We're so thankful for the folks that have uh, given of themselves to make these things and develop them for for our kiddos. Um, it's just it's awesome to see our our body still longing and desiring to serve each other, even in these weird weird days. Uh, maybe serve each other outside of their comfort zones, outside of their realm of of uh, expertise, but still putting together those videos, the time that it takes, the effort that it takes. We're very thankful for those volunteers um, getting together and making those Trek videos happen. I know the kids are, are blessed by them as well. 
Um, also, uh, we want to get going uh, now and then continuing on after coronavirus, I, hopefully soon, um, an Old Testament survey class that I'm going to be teaching. So, and it be, when we can gather, it would be more interactive. It would be dialogue back and forth. Um, obviously, when we're doing this on Facebook Live, it won't be so much like that. But here's what I'm thinking, what, we, what I want to do, and we'll do that this first week uh, and then see where we go from there. But this Wednesday at 8.30, we have just our Facebook Live open. I'll be sitting here again um, and do an Old Testament survey. And if you're wondering why an Old Testament survey, let me tell you why I think that that's important. Because you're constantly hearing from all trusted Christian sources, read your Bible more. You should be constantly hearing from me and from our elders, from the pulpit. Read our Bibles more. You need to be reading regularly through your Bible. You feel the the guilt of when you don't read through your Bible or when you don't find it joyful. Um, and, and so what are we saying when, when we uh, are telling people, hey, you need to be reading your Bible, but then not helping you know what it is that you're reading? It's like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 when, when Philip comes up to him and says, hey, uh, do you know what you're reading? And he says, how can I? Unless somebody tells me. And so I have kind of a, a special burden for the Old Testament. Uh, and particularly because it's three-fourths of our Bible. And we can't just disregard it and go, ah, that's not for us. Oh, it absolutely is for us. And it's not just for the history buffs. It's not just for the Bible trivia games so that you can know which direction the sheep gate was facing in the book of Nehemiah and when Bible trivial pursuit. No, there are meaningful, critical truths in every passage of the scriptures, Old Testament included. And so what I want to do is on Wednesday nights we're, for 45 minutes, we're going to hard stop at 9.15, 8.30, 9.15, doing it that late so that parents with young kids can get the kids in bed and then come and just watch. I mean, just like you're watching an episode of something on uh, TV. We'll just watch this. Uh, but the point being that if you can do one book of the Bible every week, a couple of them we split in half, like Genesis we cut in half, Exodus we cut in half, the rest of them we do one at a time, and some of the minor prophets we lump together. Um, but so that when you parachute in to a book of the Bible, you know what's going on and you know why it matters. How does this contribute to the greater narrative of the scriptures? How do I get my hands on it? Because to me, one of the most um, tragic is not the right word. That's too severe. Um, maybe just bothersome things is when I know of dads and moms who have kids who ask, why are we reading about Solomon? He's not Jesus. He doesn't matter. And then the parents not knowing why Solomon matters if he's not Jesus. Why? How do I explain to a four-year-old what, what's the point of the book of Hosea? Why, why do, how, do I, how do I explain to my neighbor why Joshua is not some wretched book about genocide? But, and those things are important. So if we can get just 45 minutes, broad overview of one book of the Old Testament, it can help us know, it can give us a map of how I can go about studying the Old Testament. So that's interesting to you. It's going to be online. We're going to do it live just like this. 
8.30 on Wednesday evenings. Check it out. And then hopefully when coronavirus lockdown is over, we can just continue rolling right along with it uh, into uh, in-person classes. I don't know if we'll do that Sunday mornings, like a Sunday school type thing, or if we'll do it on a weeknight here at the church. But I want it to be for all people, anybody interested in wanting to come, um, to come. Uh, and and there will be handouts. I can get those to you. I'll scramble and, and get those to where you can have something to hold on to. So as you're reading through your Bible regularly, you know why this matters in the book of Job, why this matters in Second Chronicles, how it builds towards Christ and the ultimate redemption of the new heavens and the new earth. So be looking for that. Lastly, announcement-wise, me and my family... We officially live in McKinney now. <laughs> we have moved into our house, and we are so thankful for all of the people from the church who have welcomed us, who have helped us. Several of you have been at our house working at six feet, social distance, um, helping scrape ceilings and paint walls and put up shiplap and, and all that stuff. And so we are so excited and so thankful to get to finally be residents here even in the midst of this kind of crazy lockdown, we're just really excited to get to be here that I do not, after this is over, this morning, I don't have to get on 380 and go back to where I sleep. I just have to get on my bicycle and go back to my house, which is like a four-minute bike ride from the church office. So I am very thankful. We are excited to get to be here uh, now as residents uh, in and amongst everybody else and not be commuting. Well, let me pray for us and then we'll get started on our uh, devotion this morning. Father in heaven, we ask that you bless this time, that you use this time over this um, insufficient medium of the internet where I can't see the church members and church members can't see each other, but they can all see me. That's just not how you've designed it. Uh, so I pray, Lord, that you would use it, though, to the best of what it can be, that it would bless our families here at the church, and that it would stand um, for the propagation of the gospel in our community and, and the excitement of the gospel in our own hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our march through uh, a series on providence, the providence of God. And um, I said series, and my phone thought I said Siri and started wigging out. Uh, we're continuing on our walk through uh, a series on the providence of God. So we've looked at what providence is in general. Like, wh what are we talking about when uh, when we say providence? We looked at that with, with the story of Joseph, right? That God is working in our lives actively and conducting all things that happen, not according to our plans, not according to what we think, uh, and not always how we would do it. But he is present. He is holding all things together and working on things. So we saw that week one. Week two, which was last week, we looked at with the resurrection uh, of Jesus on Easter Sunday, we looked at God's sovereignty and providence over sin, in a sense, that's what we were really looking at was that God's providence even extends over the sins of those who put Jesus to death. They were truly wrong for that. Those actions were truly sinful. 
Nevertheless, God was sovereign over it, though he did not do those sins or stir up in those men to sin. He didn't create that sin in them, but he is, he is providential over it. And it was always going to happen in the way that it did. So now this Sunday, what I want to look at, uh, well, before we do that, our last two, what I want to do is look at God's providence over the church, and then God's providence is truly kind, truly benevolent, truly loving, truly kind and loving. But this week, before we get to looking at God's providence over the church, before we get to looking at God's kindness, that, that his, his providence is always good and kind, today we're going to look at God's providence and our pain. Providence and pain. Is God's sovereignty, does it extend to my suffering? So let me let me do a little intro, a little um, just kind of thought provoker. You ever said the phrase, it was a total God thing? Uh, or man, it was such a God thing that that happened. You ever said that phrase? I mean, I'm sure I've said that phrase before too. We've heard it, you know, a thousand times. When we say that phrase, we kind of all know what somebody means when they say it. What does somebody mean when they say it was a total God thing? This is what somebody means when they say that, I, 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 from my perspective. That something good happened to me or to someone that I love and care about, and it was, it was a good thing, and it was outside of my control. Therefore, it was a God thing. I didn't, I can't take any credit of making this good thing happen. Therefore, it was a total God thing that that blessed thing happened. For example, let's say you have a kid going off to college and they choose to go to the University of Texas at Austin and then they go potluck for their roommates and they get a godly Christian young freshman in college and you're telling your friends, oh, it was a total God thing that my freshman at UT got a Christian roommate. And, and you'd be right. Because let's face it, UT basically could just be called Philistine University. And them getting a Christian roommate at Philistine U would have been a huge God thing. Oh, just kidding. We love all of our Longhorns. I'm sure there's plenty of believers there in Austin, uh, just like there is everywhere else. Though my grandmother, uh, in her very candid, candid way, said that Austin is a wicked, wicked place. Oh. Take that for what it's worth. But what are we subconsciously believing when we say it was a total God thing? Maybe we don't believe it wholeheartedly. Maybe we're not really like, uh, this is what we would say, tell somebody that we're, we believe when we say it was a total God thing. What are we subconsciously believing though? Or could we be believing? I think what we could subconsciously be believing is that I control most of my life uh, most of the time. I think that, I mean, with what we could be saying. And what I believe God does is that he controls things that are good that I can't control. That's what we think God does. Or that's what we could think that that's what God does. Um... He's in control of good things that happen to me uh, that I know that I can't control. 
but everything else is in my control. Otherwise, it was a total God thing. Now, saying it was a total God thing, or it was such a God moment, a God connection, uh, is not wrong. But here's where I want to challenge us. We should be saying that more. Not less. We should be saying that more. For instance, we should, we should be saying, I remembered how to tie my shoes this morning. It was a total God thing. <laughs> I woke up today. It was a total God thing. The total God thing that happened. Because here's the, the, uh, the real reality. If we really press in ourselves, what isn't? A total God thing. What what things in our life and our experience are outside of the control of God? What's not a God thing? Well, of course we would have to say nothing, just based on just gut reaction. But even particularly based off our uh, our study of the providence of God, everything is a God thing. If it happens, if it exists. It's a God thing. God did that thing. God ordained that thing. The, the everything is under God's. I mean, Hebrews one. Hear the hear the author of Hebrews say this. Hebrews one, uh, three. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Present tense upholds he is currently upholding the universe by the word of his power i mean i gotta break it to miss underwood you never had the wheel jesus always had the wheel according to hebrews 1 3 so everything is under the control of god Everything is a God thing. My challenge is to us to say that more, even if you, not even necessarily have to say that phrase more, but to think that more. What isn't God? God did that. I got to work and didn't get a flat tire. Total God thing. God did that. I woke up today and none of my children had a life-threatening illness. It, it was a God thing. Every day. But let's look at the other side. I got coronavirus. It was a total God thing. Not I got healed from I got coronavirus. It was a total God thing. Is that valid? Is that appropriate to say? Well, let's look at Job. Turn your Bibles to the book of Job with me. This book. 42 chapters of, of what we need. If we did not have the book of Job, I surmise we would be in a world of frustrated confusion in times of pain, in times of suffering. If we did not have the book of Job, where would we be? I am so thankful for this book. It can be hard to understand. And most of the time what we do is we spend our time in chapters 1 and 2 and then in chapters 38 through the end when God starts talking, 
we don't want to look at the middle, the dialogue between Job and his three friends. And we're not going to do that today either, <laughs> actually. Uh, but when we do the Old Testament survey and we get to the book of Job, we'll, we'll, we'll scan that and we'll give you some outline and some structure to understand what is the going on in that conversation that rounded around with, with Job and his friends. But the book of Job is, you could just subtitle it, How, how to Suffer. How to suffer in in light of God as one who acknowledges the biblical one and true God. And w w you might be familiar with the story. Uh, what we're going to do, I'm going to just kind of summarize chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, we see that Job is the greatest of all people of the East. This is a godly man. Verse 1, he's blameless and upright. He feared God. He turned away from evil. He's incredibly wealthy. That's outlined by his livestock. Job is set in uh, the time of Abraham. So, so Job is old, 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 prior to Abraham, maybe. Um, so his wealth uh, is measured in, in livestock, and he's a wealthy man, blessed man, godly man, making sacrifices um, faithful. Now, let's pick up the story here. Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So that debunks kind of one thing, that God can't be around evil. Satan rolls up in his presence right here. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Whose idea was it for Satan to consider Job? It was God's idea. Satan didn't bring it up. He just said, this is where I've been wreaking havoc all over the globe, going back and forth. And then God said, did you get to Job? Have you considered Job? It was God's idea for Satan to turn his wicked gaze onto Job. And then Job, Satan says in verse 9, does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed his work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. God, if you hurt him, if you do these things, so Satan's crediting God with what's going to happen to Job. And so what we see here in chapter one is that certainly all of these bad things do happen to Job. He loses all of his wealth and all of his children die. They're, they're killed. He's devastated in chapter one but yet his body he doesn't get nothing happens to his personal body and how does job respond to the suffering verse 20 look at chapter 1 verse 20 then job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped he worshiped in suffering what a response that's not my gut response, shamefully. 
verse 21, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who does Job give the credit to for his livestock being stolen and carried away, his wealth plummeting, his retirement plan going to ruins, and his children dying? Well, the Lord gave. We're fine with that. But then Job says, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He credits God for the suffering that he has in his life. And he's right to do so. He's not impugning God. Look at verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So him saying, God is the one who has done this, brought this pain to me, he's not charging God with wrong. He's not doing it. He's, he's being honest. He's not sinning. And then chapter 2, Satan and God have another interaction. And this time, God lets Satan uh, harm Job's body. So he's afflicted with all these painful boils all over his body. And then his wife comes uh, with some sage encouragement that you'd want to have from a spouse in time of physical pain. She says in verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks, honey. <laughs> I, I know you're suffering. I know it's miserable. Just curse God and die. No weeping with him. No sitting in the ash heap with him in the pain. No offering to, to do what she can to help alleviate some of the pain. She just says, curse God and die. You've done something wrong. Just finish the deal. What does he say to her? You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? See what just Job just did there? He knew that the good that he had in all of his life was from God. He, had, he knew that he had received that. All of that livestock, all of that health, all of that provision, all of that um, family blessing, all of that goodness received from God. But then now he says that all of this evil that's happened in his life, the death of his kids, the liquidation of his wealth, and now the, um, the elimination of his own health, that is from God. And then what does it say at the end of the verse? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't sin to say that God had caused evil to happen to him. Job's perspective is so uh, admirable. Look at, look at Job 13, verse 15. In the ESV, it says it like this. It says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's, that's a powerful, powerful perspective to have. God has done this, yet he is my hope. Yet, he, yet he, is, he is good. He is not wicked. He's not abandoned me. 
that Job can say in Job 19, verse 25 through 27. Look at this. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Even in the midst of this pain, I know that God is my Redeemer, and he will come, and he will stand on the earth, and he will make everything right, and because he has saved me, I will be able to be in front of his presence and not be disintegrated, but yet blessed forever. His eyes are on eternity in the midst of his own pain. So the first question that we just answered was, do God's people suffer? Notice I said God's people, not good people. There are no good people, so that, that argument's out the window. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks for God. Good people do not suffer because there is no good. there are no good people. But there are God's people. And so Job answers the question for us, do God's people suffer? Do God's people have real pain? The answer is yes. Ask David as he's running in the wilderness. Ask Paul as he's locked up in prisons and beaten and shipwrecked and snake bit. God's people do suffer. Now, let's answer this question before we get into more pressing needs. Where is God when I am suffering? This is one of the key tenets of providence. The doctrine of providence is that God is present, that he is active. We do not serve a God who uses the universe and the, the, the world like a top, and he got it spinning perfectly exactly where he wanted it to spin, on the trajectory he wanted it to spin, in the way, in the environment that he wanted to spin, but he spun it and then just left it alone. That is not the God that we have. The doctrine of providence teaches us that God is active and present in every single moment of our existence. It's not as if though that like when R.C. Sproul said it like this, that when it rains, that God makes the grass wet. No, no, no. The rain makes the grass wet, but God makes it rain. He's not eliminating secondary causes, but he's the primary cause behind that. Satan is the one who afflicted Job. Satan is the one who roused those marauders to come and steal uh, all of his cattle and all of his flocks. Satan is the one who pushed that storm to knock over the house and to kill all of Job's kids. thats He's the secondary cause. He is guilty and responsible for that evil. But God is the primary behind it. So God is present in all that is happening. And for his people, he is especially present in his love and in his care. Follow me to the book of Psalms. Psalms is a book of the Bible that we should all be regularly reading through on a daily basis. Daily, weekly, monthly, some kind of regular basis. We need the Psalms. The Psalms is full of people, particularly David, who was in the midst of true and real pain and expressed that to God in a sanctified way and then yet affirm the truths of God's goodness. Look at Psalms 34. 
the 34th Psalm, I want to bring up verse 18. Now look back at verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Bible says right here that God is near to the brokenhearted. And we know at the same time that God is omnipresent, that God also is said to have be so high and far above us, but yet he's near. He is near in our pain. He is near to the brokenhearted, to the crushed in spirit. He is near. Flip over to your right in the book of Psalms to Psalm 46. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that God is distant, that God is cold, that God is un somehow unloving. It's certainly not the case. Look at Psalm 46, verse 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, a very present help. You know, I think when, we, when we're suffering and when there's pain in our lives, uh, one of the most difficult things to deal with is the distance that we feel. That even if somebody's next, sitting next to us, that they don't, they don't really get it, or they're not, they're not really saying the right things, or they're talking too much, or they're, but, but a very present help in trouble is what God is. Therefore, what does verse 2 say? We will not fear, even though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We will not fear because God is near. God is present. Sometimes when we think, of, when we think about the uh, sovereignty of God, the providence of God, we can think of a cold, distant, um, unaware or unconcerned, can't be bothered uh, dictator or, or just despot ruling over everything. Yeah, he's making everything happen, but he's not very involved or near um, or caring. But look at this, very present help present right there with us help right there with us and then flip even over further to the right as we continue to answer this question where is god in my pain what does providence mean for as far as his for lack of a better term location we know that god's not bound to locations but but where is he in my pain the book of lamentations also a good read for us written probably by jeremiah uh, after um, the nation of Israel has been fully and totally exiled out of the land, they're in pain, they're in suffering that they've earned. But Lamentations chapter 3, 
and verse 55 and following. Even in the midst of this pain, even in the midst of pain that sin caused, their own sin caused, Jeremiah can say this about God. Verse 55 and following, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. I called and you heard confidence that God is there. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have taken up my cause. You have redeemed my life. You heard you came near. So that's where God is in our pain and in our suffering. That's where he was with Job. He, he wasn't absent. He wasn't just a puppet master up in the, the heavens, unconcerned and unaware of the pain of his people. No, he's, he's there. You came near. You heard. You have redeemed. That's what we know to be true about God in that moment. So then we ask this question. If it's true that God's people suffer, they do. And if it's true that God's present in it, is he sovereign over it? You know, it's one thing when uh, you're, you're sick with some really debilitating disease or you have some, some dire diagnosis and you have a great friend or a family member or a spouse come into the hospital room and say, I love you so much. Everything is going to be okay. That, that can be comforting. It's a lot more comforting when the doctor comes in and says, hey, I know exactly where that tumor is, and I've cut out a thousand of these. Everything is going to be okay. That sounds a little different. So the family member can, can sit and feel your pain, but they can't really do anything about it. They don't really have any power or control over it. The doctor, though, does. She can get in there with a scalpel and cut that thing out and solve, solve that pain. So in a grander scheme, is God sovereign over my suffering? Well, we already saw in Job 2.10, when Job tells his wife, shall we receive good from the hand of God and not receive evil? Job acknowledges right there, God's absolutely sovereign over this, the whole of this. Amos, minor prophet, Another plug for us to uh, do a Old Testament survey so that we know what the book of Amos is all about. But Amos chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Is a trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So there we would see an acknowledgement there that God is sovereign over suffering. Is Here's the kibosh, though. If we can link anything that we're believing to Jesus, it seems like we'll, we just accept it a lot better. If we, can, if we can link it to something that Jesus said or something that was true about Jesus, then it seems to be a lot easier for us to accept. So was God sovereign? Was he providential over Jesus' sufferings? Yes, he was. Isaiah 53. 
describes the suffering of Jesus as a future prophecy. Hear what it says about God's relationship to Jesus' suffering. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he, meaning Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. Who smote Jesus? God did. That's what it says. Look at verse um, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why was Jesus bearing all of our sin, the weight of all of our sin, and thus the wrath that came upon that sin? Because God put it on him. God was sovereign over that, over that part of his suffering. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of God to crush Jesus. He put him to grief. So then, if God is sovereign over Jesus' sufferings, and we as Christians, we know clearly from the New Testament that when we are saved, we are put in Christ, immersed into Christ. That's what baptism uh, is talked about in, in Romans 6, that we're baptized into Christ. So what's true of him is true of us. If he's sovereign over Jesus' sufferings, and he's sovereign over ours. He's sovereign over our pain, too. And is that a good thing? Well, let's ask it from another way. What if God is not sovereign over our pain? What if his providence doesn't extend into our suffering? Long time ago, uh, back when I had social media accounts. I did what all social media is good for, arguing about things that cannot be settled at all. Pointless, fruitless argumentation uh, over people that are that disagree and are never going to change their minds. That's what I, I did. So I had a, I had a, a friend, uh, kind of a distant friend in college. We were in the same major and then my roommate was good buddies with him and they went to church together and he posted on facebook in bold uh type if you are sick you are outside of the will of god something along those lines that if you're sick it's not because god wants you to be sick and then me being the uh cantankerous dummy posted on there what about the book of Job? And to which he didn't say anything, because I actually knew him. His name he was a friend. Uh, and then his legion of other friends came roaring to his defense. Now, the background was, was that he was, uh, he was currently at some school of supernatural ministry in California, uh, connected with Bethel Church. It's really called the School of Supernatural Ministry. And, uh, and that's what they truly believe, that if you're sick, it's, it's never God's will. God never wills you to be sick. So if you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith, um, and you should never be that way. When I brought up the book of Job, all of his friends who were at that school were yelling and screaming and saying, 
How can you possibly just use one book, one one anomaly that's in the Old Testament and all this that's out of that, that we don't even, they basically just wrote it off like we don't have to consider it like 2 Timothy 3:16 doesn't apply to the book of Job. That the book of Job is not perfect for training for correction for uh, for righteousness. It's not necessary. It's not inspired as much as the rest of the Bible. But it absolutely is. It is 42 chapters of suffering. So they just wrote it off. that Because that that, they wanted to believe that if you're sick and suffering, it's never because God wants it that, to be that way. And then I heard this one time. One time I went to a funeral for a young man who died at age 18 from an amoeba in uh in lake water and went to the funeral um with a bunch of his friends who were working at the camp where it, ha it had happened and the pastor said at the funeral god didn't want this to happen he's crying right there with us and when i came back from that all of this young man's friends were comforted in the moment and then panicking afterwards. It sounds good in the immediate to say, God didn't want this to happen either. He's on your side. He's with you. He's just as depressed about this as you are. That feels good to some in the moment but it turns into a pretty thin gruel afterwards. When you start getting a little distance from the actual pain, then you start thinking, well, then who is God? If he didn't want it to happen, then he couldn't stop it from happening. Then he's, why would I pray to a God who can't do anything about my pain? who couldn't do anything in any way. What, what happens if God is not sovereign over suffering, if his providence doesn't extend to pain? Then we are praying to someone who can just give it their best shot. Then we're praying to God and God's going, okay, I'll roll up my sleeves and see if I can make it happen. I don't want you to get sick like that. I don't want that cancer to come and afflict you. I don't want you to lose your job, but it might happen anyways. And I can't really do anything about it. But I'll give it my best. You asked me to try, so I'm going to try. That's what, that's what our prayer life becomes, devolves into if God's not sovereign. If he's not, if his providence doesn't extend to our pain, then we're better off not praying at all. Because he he may not be able to do anything about it, even though he wants to. That means then, oh, we back it up even further, that we have a God who doesn't get what he wants. And I see in the New Testament that he wants me to be saved by believing in him. Well, what if he doesn't get that thing that he wants? Then we get a whole big problem. So this isn't really just a, an issue of, 
of me and right now. This is really an issue of who is God? We must know who God is. So we take great comfort over the fact that God's providence extends to my pain and that his sovereignty extends over my suffering. That we can be like Job and say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know that my Redeemer lives. If I suffer now, that's a result of the fall. That's a result of sin. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that my soul is saved. I know that these 80 years, these 90 years that I live here on earth are going to be over at some point anyway. So what am I hoping for for eternity? We take great comfort that God is sovereign over sickness, that he is providential over pain. We take great comfort in that. So then we're left with the question, that, that we can't help but ask, just because we're, we're people. Why then suffering? Why then pain? Uh, in, in the 1860s in London, I, I think I've read to you before, uh, uh, Spur Charles Spurgeon uh, was dealing with a cholera outbreak, and he spoke a little bit to the why of why this wretched disease was um, infecting so many people. Um, and he said this, he said, shall there be cholera in the city and God hath not done it? My soul cowered down under the majesty of that question as I read it. read it. It seemed to stretch its black wings over my head and had I not known them to be the wings of God, I should have been very much afraid. And then he said this, would to God all of us were aroused to a searching of heart and above all led to fly to Christ Jesus, the great sacrifice for sin, and to find in him a rescue from the greater plague, the wrath to come. Why does God allow suffering? Well, I think in part, so that we are drawn to Christ. Jesus, Jesus addressed this in Luke 13, this very reality of, of, this, of it seeming like God's people suffering or, or pain inflicted. Read, read with me in Luke chapter 13, verse one through five. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus, about the Galileans who, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So you know what happened there? Uh, we're jumping in here in the middle. Some people come to Jesus and they're saying, hey, did you hear about Pilate murdering all of those Jews who were in the middle of sacrificing to God, making their sacrifices to God? Did you hear about that, Jesus? And this is what he says in verse 2. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So, so apparently some of these people were like, they probably were really bad, huh? Because of what Pilate did to them. They must have been really wicked for that kind of suffering to come upon them, for Pilate to slaughter them while they're in the middle of their sacrificing. And Jesus says, do you think that they were worse than regular people? Verse 3, no, I tell you. 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Wait, what? Why are we talking about me now? I was asking you about them. Jesus turns it back around on them. Then he goes to say, verse 4, Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So wait a minute. Wait a so Jesus is bringing up these two tragedies. This mass murder at the sacrifice altar that Pilate did, and then this tragedy of, of a tower, the Tower of Siloam, probably under construction, falls and kills 18 people. And you know what Jesus doesn't talk about? Wow, I know. It, what kind of, he doesn't talk about what we're talking about, which is, where is God in my suffering? Is God sovereign over these things? He doesn't say any of that. He just says, you don't know when you're going to die. It could happen in the most horrible ways. So it's incumbent upon you to repent and to trust in Christ. That's what he says. So I think in part, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? It's to drive us to the greater reality that whatever pain we're suffering now, Whatever misery can be inflicted upon us now is nothing to be compared to the eternal suffering in hell. Nothing to be compared to that. So, so my hope and prayer it, with this coronavirus is that people are being made imminently aware of their mortality. I could die. Everybody's walking around with gloves and masks because they're aware there is an invisible reality out there that if it hits me, I can die. My hope and prayer is that that drives people to the gospel. I mean, that was Spurgeon's outtake uh, from that cholera outbreak was people are going to be listening now. People who weren't considering their end, people who weren't considering what comes after the grave. They're going to be listening now, could be listening now. So in part, I think that that's what it's for. And for Christians who already have our hope in Christ, who already know that we, we must have some kind of redemption beyond the grave in order to not be suffering for eternity, what suffering does for us is it weans us off of this world. That's so, that's so easy to say when you're not suffering. I acknowledge that. Not suffering right now personally. It's so easy to say, yeah, it'll just wean you off. Quit being a baby and loving this world so much. Easy to say when I'm not suffering. And I hope that I can still say it when I do suffer. Because I don't want to love this world. Psalm 73, uh, the, the, uh, the psalmist was in the midst of some kind of suffering. Uh, he was watching uh, the wicked people are just prospering and they're growing and everything that they do is perfect. Their lives are awesome. But then he realizes the reality that that's not actually true. And he says this in verse 23, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Then afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I want that to be my heart all the time. And sometimes it takes suffering to be that. Sometimes it takes suffering for me to get there. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, 
And after all of this pain is over, you will receive me to glory. That, that's what I hope suffering does to me. So why suffering? Why pain? It makes us look to the end. It makes us look to what we're really destined for. We know we're pilgrims here. We know that we're, we're not meant for here. We know we're on a, 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 a journey, a sort we're travelers, we're sojourners. None of this is our home. Heaven is our home. The new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that's what we're made for when we're remade upon our conversion. Paul understood that. He's in the midst of suffering and pain. In 2 Timothy, that's the end of his life. He's going to die, and he knows it. And the very end of that book, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I'm about to be an empty cup. I'm about to be gone. This is all over. He's in, the, he's in prison, knows he's headed for the chopping block, the actual chopping block. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And here's his hope in verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who's loved his appearing more than anything here on this earth. That's what suffering teaches us to do. So I think those are two reasons why suffering, to let us know that the death and judgment's coming and to let us know that we're not made for here, that our hope is not in what we see. Our hope is in a land, a city yet unseen, like Hebrews 11 says that Abraham was longing for. But you know what? You may never actually know why you go through the things that you go through. Now that's hard. You think, consider the, the book of Job. When the book ends, and we don't have time to go back into it, but when the book ends and God speaks to Job because Job starts towing the line of starting to impugn God, starting to accuse God of sinfulness, he doesn't do it, but he gets close. Uh, God speaks to him and sets him straight, rebukes him for it. And you know what God never does? He never explains to Job why all of that stuff happened to him. Why did his wealth get liquidated? Why did his family die? Why did his wife turn on him? Why did his body get completely wrecked by plague? God never explains any of that. He doesn't say, well, Job, so... You know, I kind of wanted to put your story uh, in this book. I'm, it's called the Bible. And uh, and people are going to, you know, they're going to need an example. And ah, short straw fell to you, bud. So, you, you know, you're the one who had to go through all of this stuff so that they could read it for centuries and millennia afterwards and understand a little bit more about me. Fact is, Satan came in uh, and I threw your name out. And then Satan had this idea uh, of how to afflict you. And I went ahead and let him, did it, let him do it. He didn't explain any of that to him. He doesn't tell him anything. And Job, if you read the end of the book, Job says, I can't believe I got so close to, to saying those horrible things. You are God. You are good. You are above me. You are greater than me. Knowing the why 
becomes exponentially less important when we truly know the who. You just stop caring. Why am I suffering through this pain? Why did this stupid virus happen right now when I'm about to retire and my 401k is in the stock market and now it's tanking and we, we stop being so concerned with the why when we know the who. If we know who God is, that he is good, that he's our ever-present help in time of need, that his loving kindness endures forever, that his mercy exceeds to the heights over the, as the heavens are above the earth, that he forgives our sin and puts it as far as the east is from the west, that when we know who he is, we just aren't as concerned about why he's doing what he's doing. We know who he is. We know what he's done. And we know what he's promised. In the promise to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children. That promise. We take it as gold. That promise is for us. That all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved forever. Though you endure now for a little while, you're headed for an unending, eternal bliss of peace and tranquility. That after 158,000 years have gone by, you're still not even really beginning to understand and experience what that real peace is, what that real, that real hope is, that, that real, not hope, that re hope realized, that real tranquility, that, that, that eminence of true love, that it, the light that we experience in heaven is just Jesus, not a son, but the son. So our suffering now, we take great comfort in knowing that God is providential over it, that he does indeed have good intended for us. And we will look at that uh, in coming weeks, that God's providence is always kind and good to his people, for his purposes, for his glory. Well, thanks for joining us today, this morning, uh, this Lord's Day, that I'm praying, just like all of you, is the last video chat. I hope it's the last one. But if it's not, we'll be back here at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. Remember uh, to, to check your email for the Trek videos, for Nathan's uh, song lists, um, Andrew's announcement about the prayer group on Tuesday nights and then also we'll try to get an email out soon uh, reminding everybody and explaining a little bit more about the Old Testament survey that's just going to be 45 minutes on Wednesday nights 8 30 9 15 after the kids go to bed well let me pray for us and then we will be dismissed father in heaven uh, we we're perplexed but blessed by your providence over our suffering. We know that we don't want it to be true that you aren't in control, but we admit in our finite minds we don't always understand why what is happening is happening to us, why this particular pain has been brought to us. So Father, we just ask for your help. We just ask for your guidance, Father. We want 
we want to be true, what Psalm 73 says is that you take our right hand and you guide us. We just want to be led along like a little child in a busy market, holding the hand of the Father. You walk us through the sea of chaos. We don't understand why everything's going on around us the way it is, but we know that your hand firmly holds us. And we know that we have no one else in heaven but you, and that we desire nothing upon the earth more than we desire you. Thank you for the word of God that teaches us, that informs us, that, it, that opens the door into knowing you so that we might be comforted and that we might be instructed on how to live, how to bless each other. And Lord, we do ask that this would be the last video chat that we have to do, that we would be able to gather again next week. But Lord, if it's not the case, we ask that you would sustain us for yet another week of distance from our brothers and sisters in Christ, from our friends and family. And Lord, let us have a, a holy and righteous longing to be with you in the one full assembly in the new heavens and new earth of all the souls that, you've, that you have redeemed, worshiping you with one voice, with one heart, uh, for all of infinity. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.